20. A professor of chemistry, is a sergeant now in charge of two German crook guns, which were captured from Turkey in the other war. He is at the Novo Burdu, a residence section outside Belgrade, on a hill. All the villas have been destroyed by the Austrian artillery fire, and, continued Miss Lozanic, she says that the toys sent by the Americans were received in Nish and distributed to the poorer children for Christmas, and that the feeling of cordiality toward the Americans is growing fast. The Dragon's Teeth by Caroline Duero. Sunny, quiet, fruitful fields of France, golden and green a month ago. Through you the great red tides of war's advance sweep raging to and fro. For patient toil of years, blood, fire and tears reward you now. The Dragon's Teeth are sown and in a night there springs to a life the armed host, and men leap forth bewildered to the fight, legion for legion lost, toll for my tale of sons, roar out the guns, cost what it cost, this is a holy war, a holy war, with thousand millions maimed and dead, to show one power dares more than others dare that higher rears one head, how will you count your gain, lord of the slain, when all is said, the dragon's teeth are sown, and in a night there springs to a life the armed host, and men leap forth bewildered to the fight, legion for legion lost, toll for my tale of sons, roar out the guns, cost what it cost, oh, tragedy of nations, who may see the outcome, or foretell the end, hark men and weeping women, misery that none may mend, ruin in peaceful marts, dazed commerce, stricken arts, God, to the ravaged heart some mercy send, the dragon's teeth are sown, and in a night there springs to a life the armed host, and men leap forth bewildered to the fight, legion for legion lost, toll for my tale of sons, roar out the guns, cost what it cost, copyright, 1914, by the New York Times Company, the greatest of campaigns the French official account the Associated Press received in London on March 5, 1915 an official French historical review of the operations in the Western Theater of War from its beginning up to the end of January, the first six months, which in terseness and dramatic power will rank among the world's most important military documents. The first chapter of the review was released for publication by the Associated Press on March 16th and appears below. It is one of those documents, rare in military annals, that frankly confesses a succession of initial reverses and official incompetence only retrieved by exercise of the utmost skill in retreat. Chapter I The French setbacks in August. The first month of the campaign began with successes and finished with defeats for the French troops. Under what circumstances did these come about? Our plan of concentration had foreseen the possibility of two principal actions, one on the right between the Vosges and the Moselle, the other on the left to the north of Verdun to a line. This double possibility involving the eventual variation of our transport. On August 2nd, owing to the Germans passing through Belgium, our concentration was substantially modified by General Schaffer in order that our principal effort might be directed to the north. From the first week in August it was apparent that the length of time required for the British Army to begin to move would delay our action in connection with it. This delay is one of the reasons which explain our failures at the end of August, awaiting the moment when the operations in the north could begin and to prepare for it by retaining in Alsace the greatest possible number of German forces. The General-in-Chief ordered our troops to occupy Malouz, Muelhausen, to cut the bridges of the Rhine at Hunengay and below, and then to flank the attack of our troops, operating in Lorraine. This operation was badly carried out by a leader who was at once relieved of his command. Our troops, after having carried Malouz, 
lost it and were thrown back on Belfort. The work had, therefore, to be recommenced afresh, and this was done from August 14th under a new command. Malouz was taken on the 19th, after a brilliant fight at Dornick. 24 guns were captured from the enemy. On the 20th we held the approaches to Colmar, both by the plain and by the Vosges. The enemy had undergone enormous losses and abandoned great stores of shells and forage. But from this moment what was happening in Lorraine and on our left prevented us from carrying our successes further, for our troops in Alsace were needed elsewhere. On August 28th the Alsace army was broken up, only a small part remaining to hold the region of Fon and the Vosges. The operations in Lorraine, the purpose of the operations in Alsace was, namely, to retain a large part of the enemy's forces far from the northern theater of operations. It was for our offensive in Lorraine to pursue still more directly by holding before it the German Army Corps operating to the south of Metz. This offensive began brilliantly on August 14th. On the 19th we had reached the region of Zarburg and that of the Eddings, Lakes, and we held the Ouse, Morhanga, Delm, and Chateau Salins. On the 20th our success was stopped. The cause is to be found in the strong organization of the region, in the power of the enemy's artillery operating over ground which had been minutely surveyed, and, finally, in the default of certain units, on the 22d, in spite of the splendid behavior of several of our army corps, notably that of Nancy, our troops were brought back onto the Grand Courant, while on the 23d and 24th the Germans concentrated reinforcements three army corps, at least in the region of Linville and forced us to retire to the south. This retreat, however, was only momentary. On the 25th, after two vigorous counter-attacks, one from south to north and the other from west to east, the enemy had to fall back. From that time a sort of balance was established on this terrain between the Germans and ourselves, maintained for 15 days. It was afterward, as will be seen, modified to our advantage. Operations in Belgian Luxembourg. There remained the principal business. The Battle of the North postponed owing to the necessity of waiting for the British Army. On August 20th the concentration of our lines was finished and the general-in-chief gave orders for our center and our left to take the offensive. Our center comprised two armies. Our left consisted of a third army, reinforced to the extent of two army corps, a corps of cavalry, the reserve divisions, the British army, and the Belgian army, which had already been engaged for the previous three weeks at Liege, Namur, and Louvain. The German plan on that date was as follows. From seven to eight army corps and four cavalry divisions were endeavoring to pass between Vivid and Brussels, and even to prolong their movements more to the west. Our object was, therefore, in the first place, to hold and dispose of the enemy's center and afterward to throw ourselves with all available forces on the left flank of the German grouping of troops in the north. On August 21st our offensive in the center began with ten army corps. On August 22nd it failed, and this reverse appeared serious. The reasons for it are complex. There were in this affair individual and collective failures, imprudences committed under the fire of the enemy, divisions ill-engaged, rash deployments, precipitate retreats, a premature waste of men, and, finally, the inadequacy of certain of our troops and their leaders, both as regards the use of infantry and artillery. In consequence of these lapses the enemy, turning to account the difficult terrain, was able to secure the maximum of profit from the advantages which the superiority of his subaltern complements gave him. Operations south of S.A. and Biari. In spite of this defeat our maneuver had still a chance of success. If our left and the British army obtained a decisive result, 
This was unfortunately not the case. On August 22nd, at the cost of great losses, the enemy succeeded in crossing the Sambre and our left army fell back on the 24th upon Beaumont Gibbet, being perturbed by the belief that the enemy was threatening its right. On the same day, the 24th, the British army fell back after a German attack upon the Mobius Valenciennes line. On the 25th and 26th its retreat became more hurried. After Landrichis and Alcatoid fell back southward by forced marshes, it could not from this time keep its hold until after crossing the Marne. The rapid retreat of the English, coinciding with the defeat sustained in Belgian Luxembourg, allowed the enemy to cross the Meuse and to accelerate, by fortifying it, the action of his right. The situation at this moment may be thus summed up, either our frontier had to be defended on the spot under conditions which the British retreat rendered extremely perilous, or we had to execute a strategic retirement which, while delivering up to the enemy a part of the national soil, would permit us, on the other hand, to resume the offensive at our own time with a favorable disposition of troops, still intact, which we had at our command, the General-in-Chief determined on the second alternative, preparation of the offensive, henceforward the French command devoted its efforts to preparing the offensive, to this end three conditions had to be fulfilled, one, the retreat had to be carried out in order under a succession of counter-attacks which would keep the enemy busy, two, the extreme point of this retreat must be fixed in such a way that the different armies should reach it simultaneously, ready at the moment of occupying it to resume the offensive altogether. 3. Every circumstance permitting of a resumption of the offensive before this point should be reached must be utilized by the whole of our forces and the British forces. The French counter-attack, the counter-attacks, executed during the retreat, were brilliant and often fruitful. On August 20th we successfully attacked St. Quentin to disengage the British Army. Two other corps and a reserve division engaged the Prussian Guard and the 10th German Army Corps, which was debouching from Guise. By the end of the day, after various fluctuations, the enemy was thrown back on the Waz and the British front was freed. On August 27th we had also succeeded in throwing back upon the Meuse the enemy, who was endeavoring to gain a foothold on the left bank. Our successes continued on the 28th in the woods of Marfi and of Jolney. Thanks to them we were able, in accordance with the orders of the General-in-Chief, to fall back on the Buzenkiel chestnut on line. Further to the right another army took part in the same movement and carried out successful attacks on August 25th on the Antain and in the region of Stinkert. On the 26th these different units recrossed the Meuse without being disturbed and were able to join in the action of our center. Our armies were, therefore, again intact and available for the offensive. On August 26 the new army composed of two army corps, five reserve divisions, and a Moorish brigade was constituted. This army was to assemble in the region of Emiens between August 27 and September 1 and take the offensive against the German right, uniting its action with that of the British army, operating on the line of hambray sur -Somme. Continuation of the retreat. The hope of resuming the offensive was from this moment rendered vain by the rapidity of the march of the German right wing. This rapidity had two consequences, which we had to parry before thinking of advancing. On the one hand, our new army had not time to complete its detraining, and, on the other hand, the British army, forced back further by the enemy, and covered on August 31st our left flank, our line, thus modified, contained waves which had to be redressed before we could pass to the offensive. To understand this it is sufficient to consider the situation created by the quick advance of the enemy on the evening of September 2nd. 
a corps of cavalry had crossed the Oise and advanced as far as Chateau 3. The first army, General von Kluck, comprising four active army corps and a reserve corps, had passed Cogne. The second army, General von Below, with three active army corps and two reserve corps, was reaching the Leon region. The third army, General von Hausen, with two active army corps and a reserve corps, had crossed the Aisne between the Chateau Porcine and Atigny. More to the east the 4th, 5th, 6th, and 7th armies, namely, 12 army corps, 4 reserve corps, and numerous ersatz formations, were in contact with our troops. The 4th and 5th armies between Viziers and Verdun and the others in the positions which have been indicated above, from Verdun to the Vosges, it will, therefore, be seen that our left, if we accepted battle, might be in great peril through the British forces and the new French army operating more to the westward, having given way. A defeat in these conditions would have cut off our armies from Paris and from the British forces and at the same time from the new army which had been constituted to the left of the English. We should thus be running the risk of losing by a single stroke the advantage of the assistance which Russia later on was to furnish. General Schaffer chose resolutely for the solution which disposed of these risks, that is to say, for postponing the offensive and the continuance of the retreat. In this way he remained on ground which he had chosen. He waited only until he could engage in better conditions. In consequence, on September 1st, he fixed as an extreme limit for the movement of retreat, which was still going on. The line of Bray-sur-Seine, Nogent-sur-Seine, Arsai-sur-Aube, Vitrille-Francois, and the region to the north of Barle-Duc. This line might be reached if the troops were compelled to go back so far. They would attack before reaching it. As soon as there was a possibility of bringing about an offensive disposition, permitting the company operation of the whole of our forces, the eve of the offensive, on September 5th it appeared that this desired situation existed. The first Germany army, carrying audacity to temerity, had continued its endeavor to envelop our left, had crossed the Grand Morin, and reached the region of Chauffry, to the south of Rebrand of Esternay. It aimed then at cutting our armies off from Paris. In order to begin the investment of the capital, the second army had its head on the line Champa-Bart, Atoges, Borders, and Bertus. The third and fourth armies reached to Calon sur Marne and Bussil-Repos. The fifth army was advancing on one side and the other from the Argonne as far as Tricurdel's and Jouvecourt. The sixth and seventh armies were attacking more to the east. But and here is a capital difference between the situation of September 5th and that of September 2nd the envelopment of our left was no longer possible. In the first place, our left army had been able to occupy the line of Cezanne, Villers Street Georges and Kirchemps. Furthermore, the British forces, gathered between the Seine and the Marne, flanked on their left by the newly created army, were closely connected with the rest of our forces. This was precisely the disposition which the general-in-chief had wished to see achieved. On the 4th he decided to take advantage of it, and ordered all the armies to hold themselves ready. He had taken from his right to new army corps, to divisions of infantry, and to divisions of cavalry, which were distributed between his left and his center. On the evening of the 5th he addressed to all the commanders of armies a message ordering them to attack. The hour has come, he wrote, to advance at all costs, and to die where you stand rather than give way, to be continued in the next issue by the North Sea, by WLCOURDNE, from King Albert's book, Death and Sorrow and Sleep, here where the slow waves creep, this is the chant I hear, the chant of the measureless deep, what was sorrow to me then, 
when the young life free thirst for joys of earth far from the desolate sea, what was sleep but a rest, giving to a youth the best dreams from the ivory gate, visions of God manifest, what was death but a tale told to faces grown pale, worn and wasted with years a meaningless thing to the bale, death and sorrow and sleep, now their sad message I keep, tossed on the wet wind's breath, the chant of the measureless deep, when Mark Channel sang the Marseillaise by with Williams from the New York Times, February 14, 1915. I went to the opera comic the other day to hear Mark Channel sing the Marseillaise. For several weeks previous I had heard a story going the rounds of what is left of Paris life to the effect that if one wanted a regular old-fashioned thrill he really should go to the opera comic on a day when Mal Channel closed the performance by singing the French national hymn. I was told there would be difficulty in securing a seat. I was rather skeptical. I also considered that I had had sufficient thrills since the beginning of the war, both old-fashioned and new. I believed also that I had already heard the Marseillaise sung under the best possible circumstances to produce thrills. One of the first nights after mobilization 10.000 Frenchmen filled the street beneath the windows of the New York Times office, where I was at work. They sang the Marseillaise for two hours, with a solemn hatred of their national enemy sounding in every note. The solemnity changed to a wild passion as the night wore on. Finally, cuirassiers of the guard rode through the street to disperse the mob. It was a terrific scene, so I was willing to admit that the Marseillaise is probably the most thrilling and most martial national song ever written, but I was just not keen on the subject of thrills. Then one day a sedate friend went to the opera comic and came away in a raving condition. It was a week before his ardor subsided. He declared that this rendition of a song was something that will be referred to in future years. Why? He said, when the war is over the French will talk about it in the way Americans still talk concerning Jenny Lind at Castle Garden, or DeWolf Hopper reciting Casey at the bed. This induced me to go. I was convinced that whether I got a thrill or not the singing of the Marseillaise by Channel had become a distinct feature of Paris life during the war. I never want to go again. To go again might deepen my impression might better register the thrill, but then it might not be just the same. I would be key to such expectancy that I might be disappointed. Persons in the seats behind me might whisper, and just as Channel got to the Amour Sacre de la Patrie, someone might cough. I am confident that something of the sort would surely happen. I want always to remember that ten minutes while Chinnell was on the stage just as I remember it now. So I will not go again. The first part of the performance was Donizetti's Daughter of the Regiment, beautifully sung by members of the regular company. But somehow the spectacle of a fat soprano nearing forty in the role of the twelve-year-old Vivandier, although impressive, was not sublime. A third of the audience were soldiers. In the front row of the top balcony were a number of wounded. Their bandaged heads rested against the rail. Several of them yawned. After the operetta came a ballet of the nations. The nations, of course, represented the Allies. We had the delectable vision of the Russian ballerina dancing with arms entwined about several maids of Japan. The Scotch lassies wore violent blue jackets. The Belgian girls carried large pictures and rather wept and watered their way about the stage. There were no thrills. After the intermission there was not even available standing space. The majority of the women were in black the prevailing color in these days. The only touches of brightness and light were in the uniforms of the officers liberally sprinkled through the orchestra and boxes. Then came El Chant du Depart, the famous song of the revolution. The scene was a little country village. The principals were the officer, the soldier, the wife, the mother, the daughter, 
and the drummer boy. There was a magnificent soldier chorus and the fanfare of drums and trumpets. The audience then became honestly enthusiastic. I concluded that the best channel could do with the Marseillaise, which was next on the program, would be an anti-climax. The orchestra played the opening bars of the martial music. With the first notes the vast audience rose. I looked up at the row of wounded leaning heavily against the rail, their eyes fixed and staring on the curtain. I noticed the officers in the boxes, their eyes glistening. I heard a convulsive catch in the throats of persons about me. Then the curtain lifted. I do not remember what was the stage setting. I do not believe I saw it. All I remember was Chinnell standing at the top of a short flight of steps, in the center near the backdrop. I indistinctly remember that the rest of the stage was filled with the soldier chorus and that near the footlights on either side were clusters of little children. Up, sons of France, the call of glory, Chinnell swept down to the footlights. The words of the song swept over the audience like a bugle call. The singer wore a white silk down draped in perfect Grecian folds. She wore the large black Alsatian headdress, in one corner of which was pinned a small tree-colored cockade. She has often been called the most beautiful woman in Paris. The description was too limited. With the next lines she threw her arms apart, drawing out the folds of the gown into the tricolor of France heavy folds of red silk draped over one arm and blue over the other. Her head was thrown back. Her tall, slender figure simply vibrated with the feeling of the words that poured forth from her lips. She was noble. She was glorious. She was sublime. With the, march on, march on, of the chorus, her voice arose high and fine over the full orchestra and even above her voice could be sensed the surging emotions of the audience that seemed to sweep over the house in waves. I looked up at the row of wounded. One man held his bandaged head between his hands and was crying. An officer in a box, wearing the gorgeous uniform of the headquarters staff, held a handkerchief over his eyes. Through the second verse the audience alternately cheered and stamped their feet and wept. Then came the wonderful, amour sacre de la patrie, sacred love of home and country verse. The crashing of the orchestra ceased, dying away almost to a whisper. Chinnell drew the folds of the tricolor cloak about her. Then she bent her head and, drawing the flag to her lips, kissed it reverently. The first words came like a sob from her soul. From then until the end of the verse, when her voice again rang out over the renewed efforts of the orchestra, one seemed to live through all the glorious history of France. At the very end, when Chinnell drew a short jeweled sword from the folds of her gown and stood, Silent and superb, with the folds of the flag draped about her, while the curtain rang slowly down, she seemed to typify both empire and republic throughout all time. All the best of the past seemed concentrated there as that glorious woman, with head raised high, looked into the future, and as I came out of the theater with the silent audience I said to myself that a nation with a song and a patriotism such as I had just witnessed could not vanish from the earth nor again be vanquished. A war of commerce to follow by Sir William Ramsay that commerce in Germany is regarded as war. That the powerful mass of the German state is projected into methods meant to kill off the trade of other nations. And that after the war between the nations the German war with British trade will be resumed. Is the burden of this address. Sir William Ramsay delivered it in Manchester on January 22, 1915. Before representatives of British associations of employers and of leading industrial concerns in many parts of the United Kingdom, making up the Employers' Parliamentary Association, Sir William is one of the world's great chemists. I suppose that among my audience some are convinced free traders, while some believe that our commercial interests would be better served by a measure of protection. This is neither the time nor the place.
nor have I the knowledge and ability for a discussion of this much debated question, nor will I reveal my own private views, except in so far as to say that I agree with the majority, but, as the question cannot be ignored, I should like to say that I hold firmly the conviction that all trade should be carried on for the mutual advantage of the parties engaged, the old fable of Isaac may be quoted, which relates to a quarrel between the different members of the body, every one of us can be, and should be, helpful to every other, independent of nation, country, and creed, that is, I am sure, what lies on the conscience of each one of us, as an ultimate end to be struggled for, although perhaps by many considered inattainable, for the same kind of reason, it appears to me that we all think that peace is a blessing, and war occurs, for under peace commerce and industry prosper, science and the arts flourish, friendships are made and adorn the amenities of life, moreover, our religious traditions in all Christian countries, and in some non-Christian ones like China, influence us to believe that war is wrong, indefensible, and, in the present year of our Lord, an anachronism, we imagined, perhaps not most, but many of us, that no important European nation thought differently, your leading liberal paper, the Manchester Guardian, on July 22, 1908, wrote, Germany, though the most military of nations, is probably the least warlike, and this doubtless represented the views of the majority of Englishmen. Some of us knew better, I have, or had, many German friends, we have lived for many years on a footing of mutual kindliness, but it was impossible to disregard the signs of the times. The reason of this war is at bottom, as we have now discovered, the existence of a wholly different ideal in the Germanic mind from that which lies at the base of the Latin, Anglo-Saxon, Dutch, or Scandinavian nations. Such a statement as this is sweeping, it can be illustrated by a trivial tale. In 1912 an international scientific congress met at Berlin, I was a member, although the conventional language was German, in compliment to our hosts. It turned out that in the long run all discussions were conducted in French. After such a sitting, the members separated, the German committee remaining behind for business purposes. The question of language was raised, I think by a Dutchman, in the corridor, of the representatives of the 14 or 15 nations present. All were agreed on this that they were not going to be compelled to publish in German, some chose English, some French, Spanish was suggested as a simple and easily understood language, but there was no love lost between the foreign and the German representatives, and this not the least on personal, but purely on national grounds, acknowledging to the full the existence of high-minded German gentlemen. It is a sad fact that the character of the individuals of the nation is not acceptable to individuals of other nations. Listen to a quotation from a letter I have received from a very distinguished Swiss, and chose me for eight aside. Denzel's tendencies elements, an incredible in conscience, acaparal being d'autrui lord paris set si natural quills northeast comprenant mempoculon ut quelt desire de southeast defendra, omond edir eight eight fate pour constitural champ dex poet apion de la magni, et chalui qui sapo set ul accomplissement de set destine eight eight, port out element, Logic and surprise. Translation, one thing has also struck me in German tendencies, that is an unbelievable want of conscience. To grab the belongings of others appeared to them so natural, that they did not understand that one had some wish to defend himself. The whole world was made for the field of German operations, and whoever placed himself in opposition to the accomplishment of this destiny was for every German the object of surprise. The view is not new, 
The feeling of surprise at opposition was expressed wittily by a French poet in the words, set animal established tersmicant, lower scon latak, ill southeast defend, this animal is full of spite, if you attack him, he will bite. Well, gentlemen, this war has opened the eyes of some of us, and has confirmed the fears of others. Not one of us wanted to fight. Our hand was forced, so that we could not have abstained without national and personal dishonor. Now, I do not think it is even yet realized that Germany's methods in trade have been, and are, as far as possible identical, with her methods in war. Let me rub this in. As long ago as 1903, at a meeting of the Society of Chemical Industry, under the presidency of your fellow citizen, Mr. Levenstein, I want doubt that under the German state there was a trade council, the object of which was to secure and keep trade for Germany. This council had practical control of duties, bounties, and freights, its members were representative of the different commercial interests of the empire, and they acted, as a rule, without control from the Reichstag. You can read what I said for yourselves, if you think it worthwhile, in the Journal of the Society of Chemical Industry for 1903. Let me give you a simple case of the operations of that trade council. Exano de Sommons, a certain firm had a fairly profitable monopoly in a chemical product which it had maintained for many years. It was not a patented article, but one for which the firm had discovered a good process of manufacture. About six years ago this firm found that its Liverpool custom was being transferred to German makers. On inquiry, it transpired that the freight on this particular article from Hamburg to Liverpool had been lowered. The firm considered its position, and by introducing economies it found that it could still compete at a profit. A year later German manufacturers lowered the price substantially, so that the English firm could not sell without making a dead loss. It transpired that the lowering of price was due to a heavy export bounty being paid to the German manufacturers by the German state. It is the bringing of the heavy machinery of state to bear on the minutiae of commerce which makes it impossible.